Hey y'all, welcome to the 50th episode of BA in Science. I'm Ooh. Maggie, that's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to do science. Actually, it's not because it's Brawl Day. We've got two. And that's right, friends. It's episode 50. Yay. Super exciting. Yay. And so a personal thank you from Brenna and myself for listening, even sporadically. We appreciate it. We love that there are people out there who want to hear what we have to say about these people. It's awesome. It's fun for us. So we hope you're having fun too. And we're going to keep having fun. There's more episodes. I mean, we're only 50 episodes in, guys. We have lots more to do. In addition, as I said, to it being our 50th episode, it's Brawl Day. So we have two BAs who really are, the, and these really are badasses this time. And it's not just their science, like they were badass people. And it's amazing. So um, this is a really good brawl, I think. And I'm really excited to to get into it. But it's the, guys, this is going to be a long one. It's it just is. That was a tough one. It was it was because and it was a tough because we I mean every episode has its elements of being difficult. This one was tough because it was a literal fire hose of information about yeah. these people because they did like everything. So oh, let's deal real quick with our weekly business. Please remember that wherever you listen, you should rate, review, subscribe, favorite, heart, whatever you did as you do on your podcatcher so that uh, people know you like to listen to us and other people will be able to find us. Don't forget about our Patreon. Speaking of awesome places to go and listen to us, you should be on Patreon listen there because you can get episodes early and you get access to bonus episodes like the cloud episode that I, um, with my interview with Gavin that I released last Friday for everybody just like as a teaser. So if you like that kind of content, that's what's over there and it's great. If you need to get a hold of us, you have things to tell us, you have guesses about who we're going to be covering, you can Facebook message us or Insta mess Instagram message us, DM. I'm I'm an old person, so I don't know what the kids say, but like <laughs> direct message us on Instagram. That's what yeah, I'm sure. talking about. And oh, our email is science at gmail.com. You can tell us there too. Um, but I think that's all the weekly business. Do we have any addendums? Yeah, I think so. Let's see. Mom and dad had a bunch, I feel like, when they listened to things. So let's see. Um, we had asked in our episode about Ruth, what your coaches taught, you know, because whatever. And so dad said that his school's golf coach taught shop, which that makes sense. I think yeah. one of our shop teachers, wasn't he a coach for something? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That seems like a kind of a. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then interestingly, his championship basketball team's coach taught driver's ed like Ruth. Like Ruth. Love that. That's exciting. So, yeah. And I think mom had something to tell us about it, too. Now I can't remember. I think her tennis coach caught, taught science. Is that what she told us? Yeah, maybe that was it. But so did mine. Right. Mine taught, well, mine taught math. And then you had yeah. a volleyball coach who taught science. Who taught science, yeah. So, so, so. yeah. Um, but still, would love to hear more about coaches and what they taught. I feel like shop doesn't, like, shop makes a lot of sense. Driver's ed's kind of. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not saying that these teachers are like dumb or coaches are dumb. I'm just saying like people that want to coach, they have to teach. They might not necessarily be 
you know. Yeah, they might they might not have ever thought that they would be teachers, but they did want to be coaches. And so there are things that you can teach with a different set of skills than a person who was like planning on going into teaching. So, yeah. you know. No, wait. I just saw in mom's text that her her tennis coach did teach English. English. Okay. Yeah, varsity right. basketball coach taught geometry. So, we Oh, there. Okay. All yeah. right. Um and then I think it was was it in the Ruth episode too, we were talking about polymers. We were talking about yeah. polymene many, and we were talking about many mers. Many mers, yeah. We didn't know what, what mers actually meant. was, which makes sense. I think we said Latin, but poly- polymer, I think it's all Greek because I think poly is also Greek in yes. origin, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so dad filled us in that mer comes from meros, which is Greek for part. So like polymer is many parts. Many parts. Oh, yeah. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, I do think it's funny to say many mers. Mers. But, yeah. You know, same diff. And I think that's maybe it. So we're, did did you get any guesses? Because I had a guess that was, and she guessed it right. So I can't say because we don't like to reveal at this part. But Ashley mm-hmm. S. got it right again. And she Dad even there. got it half right. And then I think he forgot to get back to us. He might have actually figured it out. But at the point of this recording, he has not yet gotten back to us about the other half of the brawl. But he did get one part of the brawl correct. Yes. So yeah, no, Ashley even included, even included the fact that he was ready to brawl all of Prussia, which is something that we will talk about today. A little teaser for you before we get into our regular episode, but that's all the addendums I have. Is that all you've got? I think so. And if we've forgotten, you can remind us, hey, I told you this cool thing and you didn't share it because we're trying to keep up, but you know, we're human. We are. We're doing our best doing our best yeah that's all i can think of yeah same so let's take a break and then we will get into two gigantically long bios and an awesome brawl rena is on the bios this week as usual with the brawl and i know you have a lot to cover so let's get right to it go ahead and give us our quote and tell us about our contenders well i have two as usual because we always have a guy in each corner yeah so we have one man who said in the field of observation, chance favors only the prepared mind. And in the other corner, we have a man who said, I have undertaken my investigation in the interests of public health, and I hope the greatest benefits will accrue therefrom. Oh, which, you know, nobody seems particularly terrible. No. I don't know about their brawl, to be honest with you, but I'll tell you. All right. Well, we are talking about Louis Pasteur. And the other man we're discussing is Robert Koch, which you have probably heard of both of those. Yeah. Um, and I'll be honest, I only very generally know or knew about either of them before doing this. Like, as far as their science goes, like, I know they're associated with, like, bacteriology, germ theory stuff, mm-hmm. and pasteurization. And uh, I yeah. think an- anthrax involved with one of these guys. Yes. It was one of these guys an anthrax. Okay. Okay. So like, that's literally, cause I've really avoided all the science stuff. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the extent of my knowledge, but I'll be honest, both these guys seem pretty cool. You know, know how normally, so- like if I feel strongly about one over the other, I kind of let you know, I don't really like not like either one. Okay. Um, so I'll be interested to see about their brawl because if you just take their life without their science, you're like, all right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to start by talking about Robert Koch, Bob, as I will call him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll talk about Louie. And I'm, 
as always, going to have to cut out a bunch of stuff about their life because I got to cover two people and not take eight hours to do it so the sound editor doesn't get mad. I mean. So here we go. All right. So Heinrich Hermann Robert Koch or Bob was born in Germany on December 11th, 1843, Um, except for at that time it would have been Prussia. But if you wanted to visit today, you'd be in Germany. Okay. Right? Yes. Um, And his dad, Hermann, was a mining engineer, and his blessed saint of a mother, Matilde, gave birth to 13 children. Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Blessed saint of a mother. Let us... Let us all mentally send her flowers and ice packs. Because 11 of whom survived childhood. Whoa. I know. Whoa. Um, yeah, I know. So, blessed saint of a mother. Um, the only fact I can tell you about Bob, though, in terms of his childhood, well, well before he started school in 1848 at the age of five, he had taught himself to read by using the newspaper. which i mean i guess i guess i mean i don't know was he like the oldest i don't really know if he had a bunch of older kids in his family they probably taught him to read but the legend the story is he taught himself to read and his parents were so surprised that he could read or something okay but also he started at age five so i mean like i don't know my kid could read at five i mean not like maybe not as much as he could but whatever anyway he apparently had a completely yeah yeah he had apparently a completely mundane childhood until he finished school in 1862, having expressed an interest in biology. Okay. That's that's it. That's all I know about his childhood. But okay. he heads off to the University of Göttingen and studies mathematics, natural sciences, and later he'll do medicine. So he finishes school in 1866, and he had studied medicine with a guy named Friedrich Gustav Jakob Henley. And Henley was a guy, I don't know, are you talking about him at all? Nope. So he was a guy who was challenging miasma theory Mm -hmm. at the time and believed that infectious diseases were caused by living parasitic organisms and not like, you know, funky air. Yeah, because we're actually going to address that whole thing later this season. So everybody just put that in your satchel. Yeah. So he's probably um, important in terms of, you know how we understand germ theory might come up again as our BAs today, I think. But anyway, yeah. In 1866, Bob finishes school, but he also gets married for the first time to a woman named Emmy Frotz. Mm -hmm. They had a daughter named Gertrude in 1868. And in the years between graduation and 1870, Bob kind of hops around to a few different jobs, like um, in Hamburg, uh, Hanover. I don't really know where else because I kind of didn't care. Because it's one of those, you know, he just kind of, I don't know, hop, hop, hop. Okay. Yeah, sure. So, in 1870, he enlisted in the army because there was a little something called the Franco-Prussian War starting. Heard of it. Which the Franco-Prussian War, as you may be aware, was between France and Prussia. They were always fighting. And that's all we need to know. No. um, I mean, it was actually a pretty short conflict. It ended in 1871. But our boy Bob gave his services as a medical officer and from one source, I saw more specifically as a surgeon, but I don't think surgery was his main deal. But I mean, if you're going to be in an army hospital, like you're going to have to be cutting stuff. Open. Yeah, there's cutting happening. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. amputations, all that. 
So he's discharged and his family and he end up in Volstein, Poland. So he is settling into life as a district medical officer. Okay. And apparently he was a bit removed from things. So like Poznan, which is the first city I recognized as I zoomed out on Google Maps, mm-hmm. is an hour by car from this place. So okay. I mean, that would have been still several hours. And I don't know... Um, like I know of Poznan because my husband has had to travel to Poland and go to Poznan, but I don't know that the general population is like, oh yeah, Poznan, yeah, I've heard of that. Have you? Heard I've of never heard then? of that. No, I have not. Right. Okay. Again, my husband has traveled there. So I'm like, oh yes, of course. I don't know that it's necessarily a, was a booming metropolis. So he's out in the boonies, still an hour away from this city, which is again, still probably not like really metropolitan. A major um, European then, city. Yeah, but Berlin was about three hours away to the west, okay. well, by car. So Google Maps says it's an 11-hour bike ride. So, like, okay, you know. Yeah, so that's, like, two I don't days. Know, bike to carriage, but, yeah. It would take him, like, two days. So he's a country doctor, basically. Yeah. And so he decides to set up his own home laboratory to do his own studies on stuff, like, I think, anthrax and such, um, which I'm it. sure you'll tell us all about. Okay, great. But I thought this was cute. He had a microscope. That his wife Emmy had gotten for him as a present. Aw. I know. We, love, we love a supportive Emmy. We love that. Yeah. I mean, like they don't end up together, but you know, we'll talk about it. Okay. Okay. So he gets busy doing important things related to science, blah, blah, blah. But he re- does realize he's removed from the broader scientific community. And so he's less aware of advancements, et cetera, things happening, right? Mm-hmm. So he does associate himself with a guy named Ferdinand Cohn at the U- University of Breslau, which is in Wrocław, which I've also heard of because it's spelled crazy because Polish to me doesn't make sense. Letters don't make sounds that I think they should make. But anyway, no. Um, no. And maybe I said half those words correctly. But anyway, by 1876, he's publishing some very important stuff, getting recognition for his contributions. And in 1880, he is appointed to the Imperial Health Office in Berlin and gets an actual lab and two research assistants and stuff. Fancy. Very nice. Yeah, no. So in 1883, he was sent to Egypt as the leader of the German Cholera Commission. Mm-hmm. As cholera would be one of the main diseases he would study um, in addition to TB, anthrax, some of those other things you'll talk about. Yep. Um, he traveled to India. I think it was India as well to study cholera. But anyway. Yep. Um, I don't have dates because I was really avoiding literally all his scientific work. And when you look this guy up, that's like all you can find. It was very hard to find like not scientifically related information about Bob. Yeah. But apparently throughout his career, he's like, he traveled to Italy, South Africa, India, Indonesia, and he's studying infectious diseases, malaria, blackwater fever, rinderpest, plague, etc. So like all sorts of things like Mm -hmm. kind of related. I mean, again, infectious diseases. I think I've listened to a TP, uh, WKY podcast on most of those diseases, but I was going to um, say I recognize literally all of those from TPWKY. Rinderpest so. is gross. Rinderpest is it's awful. Yeah, I mean, so is plague, but you know, I anyway, mean, like everyone knows about plague, but like there's other things out there. Don't even get me started on like prions. Oh, prions okay. oh my gosh, I, that's that was going to be my example. Prions, that's a no for me. They're the most terrifying thing, guys. They're terrifying. They're terrifying. Completely. I'm not, just the scariest thing I've ever heard of. Prions. Because you can't stop. Like, no, there's nothing what, you can how do. How do you? Anyway. Okay. I can't go down that rabbit hole because then I'll be kept up at night. I know. I'm concerned about that. So 
1891, Bob was made an honorary professor of medical faculty of Berlin and the director of a new Institute for Infectious Diseases that they basically opened for him in Berlin Mm -hmm. because that became later on would become known as the Robert Koch Institute, Mm -hmm. which you may have heard of. Yes. I think most people have probably heard that. Maybe. I don't know. I feel like I had heard that. So anyway. In these positions, he mentored several other scientists, and they also went on to be pretty big deals themselves in the field. So um, his mentorship did kind of impact beyond his specific work. In 1893, for reasons I could not find, despite, trust me, a lot of digging. I believe it. He divorced Emmy. He divorced Emmy. Yeah. And later that year, marries a woman named Hedwig Freiburg. Okay, here's a hypothesis that I have. He moved to Berlin, found a hot honey, ditched his wife, and married the new one. Okay, or, yes, that's a that's a distinct possibility. Or he moved to Berlin, his wife was like, this sucks, divorce mm. me so that I can go do whatever I want. And he was like, yeah, fine, whatever, I'm living here anyway. I mean, she bought him a microscope. I feel like she tried to be supportive. And I feel like she would have been like, we have to move where in Poland? Because they were like not in Poland to start. I think it was him, not her. We'll never know, but I don't blame Emmy. I blame Bob. Bob and maybe Homewrecker Hetty. Well, I mean, Homewrecker Hetty could also, I mean, that's, was she younger than he was? Like, I don't know. Because, again, I couldn't really find any information. It was really hard to find. I wanted some tea, and I couldn't get it. So it'll just have to be a mystery. I'm just calling her homewrecker Hetty. So, sorry, Hedvig Freiburg, if I'm slandering your name. You can't slander a dead person. Oh, okay, good. Her family can't come sue me like uh, litigious what's-her-face over there, the Cousteau family. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think uh no i don't think you i know mom you were almost a lawyer can you slander a dead person you can't slander a dead person you for slandering a dead person okay i'm 99 sure you can't someone someone will fact check us that's fine i'll say the alleged homewrecker the alleged homewrecker heady there you go now we're now we're covered now we're covered that covers my bases okay yes in 1905 bob gets the nobel prize for physiology or medicine for his work on tb so guessing that's probably a big deal it was um, but we're not going to talk about it oh okay because that's not well, related to the no world. that's that's not true we're going to yes okay. it, it's not central to the brawl but there was kind of okay. a some ugliness yeah there's no way you could cover all of their science either oh because I my think they gosh all, they both did like so much stuff it's overwhelming like i got a book on louis pasteur and i'm just like wow this book is mostly about all his work and it's literally eight bazillion things that there's no way Maggie's definitely like she's not covering all these things no that I'll talk about it more in my section and I've already mentioned this I've already mentioned it but like there is so like we couldn't we could we would have to have like two episodes on each of these people just to cover their only science yeah that's not even personal life it would be three episodes it's wild so anyway yeah in April 1910, Bob had a heart attack and his days were kind of numbered from then. His heart never recovered. And after he gave a lecture in Berlin on TB, three days later, he's in Baden-Baden, probably for health purposes, because Baden-Baden was like one of the places you went if you yeah. were like seeking healing, you know, yeah, like air spas and, water and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. Well, Baden-Baden, right? Isn't that? Anyway. Yeah. 
and he died of heart failure there. On May 27th, 1910, he was 66 years old. Sad. So, um, that's Bob. I don't really have a whole lot else about Bob. Um, he did have that one daughter with his first wife, but I didn't really see much about, like, what happened with her. Didn't spend too much time looking, but I don't know what happened with Gertrude, uh, or anything like that. So... Uh, I'm sure we'll talk later about like his awards and some of that other stuff too. We'll get into that. Yeah. You know, that's kind of his, his bio. Legacy, okay? Yeah. So let's talk about Louis. Louis okay. Pasteur was born Friday, December 27th, 1822. Apparently at 2 a.m. I'm not sure why we know that so specifically, but it was in one of the sources I read that it was 2 a.m. So Very there you specific. go. Okay. If Louis was a woman, we probably would just be like, oh, she was born sometime around Christmas. But you know, anyway. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. By 1822, they actually probably, uh, you know, kept records of their children's births. But, you know. But birth Louis was born in... I don't know about that. I don't know. Louis was born in... I'm probably going to say this wrong. It, it looks like Dole. Maybe it's Dole? I don't really know. Dole, France? Anyway. Sure. He's French, right? Louis. Sure. Um, to Jean-Joseph and Jeanne-Etienne Roqui. John Joseph, or JJ as I call him because, you know, too many French names, yes. was quite a character, I think. Oh. Um, yeah. So a few things about Louis' family origin. So Pasteur, as a last name, does indicate probably at some point earlier in the family, they were shepherds. Yes. Right? Pasteur. JJ was orphaned at a very young age and brought up by his aunties. He was cons- uh, he was conscripted to war, um, you know, Napoleon, et cetera, all et cetera. that good yes. stuff. He earned the, uh, I'll say it in French so I can butcher it some more, La Croix de Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur, right? Like Legion of Honor, whatever. The, the it is cro- a big deal. The, the cross of the Legion of Honor, yeah. Soldier of the Legion of Honor, anyway, big yeah. deal. So he's somewhat distinguished. Yeah. Anyway, when old Boney gets defeated... JJ Bonaparte, right? Yeah. Old yeah. Boney gets defeated. JJ is out of a job. So he moves to Salins, which is a very small town, and he's a leather tanner. While there, he laid eyes on Jeanne Etinette, mm-hmm. who was described as, in one of my sources, oh gosh, a very imaginative woman who was easily carried away by her enthusiasm. Okay. So. She was eight months pregnant when she and JJ got married in 1816. So okay. how's that for getting carried away by your enthusiasm? I She's carried away by something. Yeah. So shotgun wedding was rather scandalous, especially in a small town. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's when they move on down to Dole and have um, a chance to kind of be removed from that scandal. It was far enough away and it was yeah. back you know, in times where they were just like, oh, we're married and I'm having a baby. It doesn't matter. We were already, you know, eight months pregnant. Right. Yep. Um, now, sadly, that baby, first baby did die after a few months. But oh, JJ God. and Joni are in it for the long haul. So they stick it out, which good for them. Great. Louis has three sisters. Virginie, named after, well, she was named after mom, but they called her that. Mm-hmm. Josephine and Emily. Emily had some kind of mental disability, perhaps, oh. and or I read epilepsy. Oh. Not really sure. She died at uh, the age of 26. Yeah. That, that's... While Josephine was apparently a gambling addict and would die at 25 from consumption, which is TB. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
This family's a lot. Louis got a lot going on in his family. Um, but for a while in his life, Louis kind of had these three sisters that he had to watch out. Like he was the, the man, right? The brother, yeah. whatever. Um, and I can only imagine how that affected him having his two of his sisters die so young. So especially of like diseases. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and we'll hear more about his other sister because I think he ends up hanging out with his nieces and nephews. But anyway, they're obviously not super well off right they're not rich because being a tanner is not something that makes anyone wants to do ever for any reason because right yeah smells bad as as we will hear actually as we will hear about next week that's pretty important oh Mm -hmm. really yes huh tanning is going to come up leather tanning is going to come up next week in our next episode Interesting. You, should, you guys gotta see Brenna's face. I wish you could see her face because she's completely confused. So that's good. That means that she didn't read what I read. It always makes the episode better. So yeah. It means I haven't done any research yet, actually. Yeah, but maybe. you know, it's fine. it's fine. I'll get it together. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. In 1826, the family relocated to Marnos, and I think that's where you can like visit Louis Pasteur's home or something like that with the plaque. I think it's yeah, there. Um, in 1831, I read that Louis finally was in first grade, which seems strange because wouldn't he have been eight or nine? Yeah, but maybe they counted grades differently. Maybe, but how do you not start school until you were, I don't know. I mean, my kid was in, you know, first grade when she was six, but anyway, six, but anyway, Louis was an average student. Wikipedia said he was dyslexic. I didn't read that in other things, but maybe he was. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. From what I read, Louis did care about his family and at least later on would be able to reflect back on his parents' contributions to his character. He once said, your enthusiasm, my brave mother, you bequeathed to me. If I have always associated the greatness of science with the greatness of the fatherland, it is because of the sentiments that you inspired in me. And you, my dear father, whose life was as harsh as your harsh craft, you showed me what patience can accomplish when the task is long. It is to you that I owe my tenacity in carrying out the work that needs to be done from day to day. Not only did you have the qualities of perseverance that make for a useful life, you also had admiration for great men and great things. I don't know if we can call Boney great, but, you know, okay, mm. fine. Okay, fine. He was a great man. He was like man. a die Yeah, mm, okay. He, sure. he was a great man. He did questionable things, but he still, <laughs> he still did great things. I mean, okay. All right. Well, big, like great like big um, remember like the great depression not the okay. awesome depression, right. okay. depression. <laughs> yeah like <laughs> that's true that's true um so i just thought that was kind of nice because his home life was good like his family um, yeah like i don't know i feel like he had like a nice family a good, life. yeah but a good bringing up yeah so he's not doing great in school so when he is 14 his dad finally got him a tutor and I'm not sure if this is because his father saw potential for Louis or he just wasn't happy that Louis, Louis wasn't achieving more at school because okay. his dad's a tanner and maybe he's thinking like, I need you to be smarter so you're not a tanner. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like yeah. he was trying to make sure he kind of had like a like, better, do better than me. You like, I, you can, be, you can yeah. be better than me. Yeah. I don't want this life for you. Okay, sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm inferring that, but no. Um, so his academic career actually does start making real progress once he starts working with the tutor. So in 1838, Louis is 16 and he is off to try out college in Paris, 
with a friend of his from where they're um, currently living, which I think at this point is Abois, I think is where they are. But anyway, so he goes to Paris with his friend. They're 16. He took courses at the college St. Louis, but was super homesick. Made it until November in his first term. Mm -hmm. And then daddy had to come pick him up in Paris and take him home. That's not great. Which, I mean, this is why today we don't send 16-year-olds to college because they can't handle it. But, I mean, I feel like back then that's what they did. So I feel like he was kind of a wuss. Like, I don't know, suck it up, buttercup. But, I mean, maybe it just wasn't, wasn't it. The vibe was off. I don't know. I don't know. So this experience was kind of, I think, traumatic for him because he basically kind of turned to drawing and painting and such to, I don't know soothe his soul I, I don't really know but he just like got real big into painting and drawing and stuff okay. and he was really good at it um but he was a really very realistic artist I guess oh, I mean I okay. think impressionism didn't take off until the mid 19th century so are we still in the baroque era mm. what comes right before impressionism it's not realism it's not really, it might be Baroque. Oh, Are we know. still in Baroque era for that long? I don't know. No, but I mean, someone tell you know, us. We weren't to Impressionism. So there was still a sense of like, you think of like pictures of like, um, lots of pictures representing Christ, right? They're they're fairly realistic. Yes. Like from the 16th century, 17th century. So I mean, but I you think know. he was like real, like, like, you know? Yeah. Um. So he did um he did a lot of portraits and stuff but i read that he was so obsessed with the representation of reality that he lost all imagination okay so, so you can take the scientist out of the science or uh like yeah. you could take the art out of the what like do you know what i'm trying I to don't... say he was still yeah. a scientist like you could try it but right at the end of the so, day like, maybe just go draw science stuff yeah, be an illustrator for a bi- a biologist. Yeah, like maybe do that because. But I think like some of his work, like he drew like a very good portrait. One of the books I had I read had some of his portraits and like had a picture of his mother. So I mean, he did do very nice portraits and they were very realistic. So I don't know. Anyway, so he quit um, college and decided to do art. So he went through like an emo phase. He had like a gap year. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. All right. That's fine. I can allow that. Um, he's, he's young. Yeah. So um, just put this in your valise, your satchel. Because we're in France. Because um, we're in France. Uh, not for today, but in 1839, um, there was a guy named Arago who was presenting a big invention to the Academy of Science in Paris that will be important at some point. But this is kind of all happening right around the time of Louis, you know dealing with school and stuff maggie's making a big face so anyway, i didn't just know your valise. I, I i will put that in my valise because i did not know that and i'm ve- that's very mm. exciting i don't so know what the much big invention interconnectedness, was, guys. so much interconnectedness don't, don't know what the big invention was but it was apparently a big deal so just tuck that piece of information away okay all right, so once Louis sued this soul from whatever trauma of, you know, going to college or whatever, he was finally convinced to go to Besançon, which is the capital of the region that his family was living in, and it's consequently not too far from home. So, like, okay. junior college. I mean, it's a real school, but, I mean, he just, he's closer to home. 
and I he became that. a student in philosophy. Yeah, he became a student in philosophy there at the Royal College. Um, in 1848, no, excuse me, in 1840, he got his Bachelor of Letters, but then he stayed on to try to earn a BS, which he failed to do in 1841. He passed in 1842 and had really crap grades in chemistry. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I didn't, I, I All right, so now that. I guess, I know. So now he gets, I guess, like, he's older, he's, you know, been successful, he's been away from home, whatever. So he wants to go to um, École Normale Supérieure, which is the ENS. It's apparently still a big deal school in France. It is. I think now they do statesman training, and I don't know, there's a bunch of stuff there. But Mm -hmm. um, now maybe Louis can handle going to Paris by himself. Um, But he actually takes two years to test in, which I thought was interesting. Like, the first year, he, like, barely like past muster to be accepted so he didn't take it because he's like no i need to do better so oh. he took another year to study and then the next year he got the fourth highest score okay so he's ready okay. so now he's ready so but while he was studying he went to the lectures of a guy named jean baptiste dumas and i do not have time for that rabbit hole dumas was a big deal Did we talk about him we talked about him before i feel like his name has been mentioned he's, before he maybe he's I don't come know. up before we're definitely going to cover him Okay. Um, so that's, I mean, that will also kind of probably affect him to a certain degree, but long story short, he studies chemistry in 1848, despite his crap grades in college, but whatever. He gets his doctorate followed by his first job as a chemistry professor in 1849 at the university of Strasbourg, which is in Eastern France, kind of close to Germany. I'll be honest, every time I hear Strasbourg, I think it should be in Germany, but it's in France. But it's kind of right, like, right on the border. I know. I don't like that it's not in France, but it's not. Or that it's not in Germany, but it's not. And that it's in France, because it sounds like it belongs in Germany. It does, but it's, but no. Yeah. So, anyway, he's still in France, but he's at this university. So, he's teaching at Strasbourg, and he meets Marie Laurent. And her daddy is the university's rector, which is, like, the president. Okay? Yeah. And they fall in L-O-B-E love. Aw, so nice. Yeah. Is, is it nice? So, I hope it's nice. Well, so he, he gets his first job as a chemistry professor in 1849. Okay. Meets Marie. Okay. And they got married May 28, 1849. Guys. That was that was quick. Is this an episode of 90 Day Fiance? Like, what is happening? What is going on? Guys, that... that uh, do you even really get to know somebody in that amount of time back then? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, in February of 1849, Pasteur wrote her dad, my only assets are good health and honest heart and my position at the universe. And I guess dad was like, good enough for me. So he, he writes a letter and is like, listen, my good sir, I'm a povo, <laughs> but your daughter is. I'm honest. I'm not sick. I don't have consumption. And I got a job. Let me tell you the truth. <laughs> I'm I'm not a liar. Your university hired me, so I must not be terrible. Also, if I cough on her, no one will die. Yeah. And Dad was like, um, "Yeah, sounds great. I give I heartily give I my mean, consent." I guess, like, it sounds like though, like they hit it off. I mean, it wasn't just like, it's not like when stupid edison was like walking in the rain and met what's her face and was just like oh you're 16 of you let's get married remember that 
I do I remember that. that. And th- so this was that. not this was not a case of that. Yeah. Is what you're we didn't saying. love that journey for her. For Edison we did not. Life. We did not love that journey <laughs> um, for her. No, we did not love that journey. Um, so then I read another source. According to legend, Pasteur spent the morning of his wedding day working in his lab. He became so wrapped up in what he was doing there that he had to be reminded to go to the church. Typical. Typical T- dude. I, it's it's a dude because like when dudes wake up on wedding day, they're just like, "What time is it? Eleven thirty? I probably got time to take a shower. You know what? I'm going to go get my hair cut this morning and then yeah. go get married. Meanwhile, women have been up since 6 a.m. Doing all kinds of crazy things to try to get ready. Yeah. I mean, anyway. Um, Maria's cute, though, because she likes science, too. And she was his lab assistant. Oh, we love a lab assistant wife. She's pulling a Marie. Lavoisier. Yeah. Yeah. Lavoisier's wife also was a um, his lab, lab assistant, assistant yeah. as well. Yeah. So I do think, like, while it seems crazy to us that he would have met her and married her in the span of, you know, five months, you know, I think it works out. So they have three kids while living in Strasbourg. Jeanne was born in 1850. Their son, Jean-Baptiste, was born in 1851. And Cecily was born in 1853. Okay. Um, then Marie-Louise was born in 1858. And Camille was born in 1863. Okay. So they have five kids total, but three in Strasbourg. And then um, they, I'll talk about, they move, but then they have two more kids. But this is, since we're talking about family stuff, um, Jeanne died of typhoid at a young age. Yeah. Um, and then Camille died in 1865 at the age of two, like shortly after. I hate that. And then, yeah. And then right after that, Cecily died of typhoid okay okay yeah yeah so it's horrible Horrible. um and he there was i didn't write the quote down but he has i saw a quote that it was he was writing a letter of basically just like like all these horrible things just keep piling up like what what is next because it's just one horrible tragedy after that like i mean it was devastating just devastating typhoid was i mean typhoid got two of us i don't know what camille died of i mean it didn't say, but she was young. I mean, she wasn't even two, so there's no telling because it was the mid 1800s. She died of the. It, she died. She got a bad case of the 1800s and died. Like that's Maybe. like everybody yeah. did. Yeah. Anyway, but Louis and Marie do stay married all of his life until he dies. So that's like 46 years of marriage for them. Nice. Okay, so now obviously I'm just gonna skip over like all all the information because it's gonna be related to that super duper extra so much science yes. so much stuff um but i'll just kind of progress us through his career in terms of, like where he goes like okay yeah yeah stuff. yeah so i will talk about the start of his scientific career with crystals because i don't know that you talked about it Did no you go ahead talking yeah about it no i'm not good this okay because yeah. he because it's i'm an organic chemist and this is so cool so we've talked about chiral molecules before i'm sure of it at some yes. point i've talked about like enantiomers and like I talked about, like your nose has chiral receptors and chiral molecules interact with those chiral receptors differently. And so the same molecule with a different position in space will smell like either caraway seeds or spearmint. Yes. Carbone is like a, a, an example we kind of always use. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just something is positioned in space differently, right? Anyway, so one of the books I read said that Louis isolated crystals of tartaric acid which is um, a chiral molecule 
And this source credited him with essentially establishing the field of stereochemistry. Yes. That's facts. I, I am an organic chemist and I never knew. I teach stereochemistry. I've just taught it. My students are about to take a test on it at the time we're recording. And like, I have never known that. And I'm mad because I've already taught it. But next time I teach, I'm going to be like, guys, let me tell you about Louis Pasteur. You can thank him for all of this stuff we have to go through because he did it first. Anyway, so cool because he was interested in how the crystals looked like because mm-hmm. they, they looked right-handed and left-handed. Yes. And you have to like, it. it's kind of complicated. But anyway, he basically saw that tar- the tartaric acid crystals had both types of crystals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was a racemic mix of the two, which means that there was equal amounts of each handedness of uh-huh. crystal. So there's no optical activity, which is we teach we teach my students like if something's a racemic mix, there's no optical activity, which means it it does rotate plane polarized light because it's chiral, but you don't see an effect of that because everything cancels out. Anyway, it's so cool. I just got really excited reading about it, and I don't know. I never knew this. Like, why doesn't the organic textbook say this? Like, because his name is literally so cool. every other textbook for all the other sciences. Well, you know what? Give the man some credit where credit's due. Like, or, you know, let my students know who they can hate because most of my students hate stereochemistry. Well, so. like we we dabbled in it in fifth grade this year with my son because we did study Louis oh. Pasteur because the way we approach science in our family is through a historical lens so okay. we go okay. through time periods which is actually kind of fun okay. because we can say this is what they thought now they were totally wrong but just wait until the 1800s we'll mm-hmm. talk about it then mm-hmm. so we we just studied Louis Pasteur because we were at that point in history and there were it was he got his own like five chapters because he did we talked about chiral molecules and how how if there's like a mix of left and right handed it's not mm-hmm. man made like like you you what you that's a natural substance you you have only one or the other if you know so we talked about that and we talked about all the other stuff I'm going to talk about but it was I had just researched this and so I was going through and I was like I know that and I know that and I know that so prep was easy that week because uh, but my son had no problem figuring out like so he might be a stereochemist someday I don't well I I also will say this I don't at me because I'm not like hating on females versus men but like I do think that there have been things that have shown that in general men tend to their brains tend to deal with spatial things better oh yes female brains and I tell my, I joke with my class, like I'm spatially challenged. They laugh about that, but I now can understand things because I've taught it so much and I've had to like really yeah. work, but I've had to really work at it to yeah. see these things in my head and be able to move, rotate molecules in my brain without yes. physically seeing it. It took a lot for me to get there because I'm spatially challenged. Um, so it's, it's why a lot of students, I think, get frustrated with it and probably more, I don't know. I, I mean, I still have male students in my class that struggle with it as well, but I'm just saying like, there are things like my husband can tell me he's gonna, I don't know, he like, he's gonna rearrange a room and he can be telling me all the things and where they're going to go in space. Like he's visually verbally saying stuff to me and I go, yeah, sure. Whatever. And he's like, you don't get what I'm saying. Do you? And I said, no, no, I have no clue what you like. If you don't draw me a picture, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yes. Cause oh, he'd be I- like, this will fit here and this will get, I'm like, what? anyway yeah yeah no I'm the same way I don't I'm a, I'm a mathematician and and I have to work like calc three when we were rotating 
curves around an axis and finding the integral like I couldn't even I was drawing it and I couldn't see it so it was it, I had to work really hard at it and yes that is part of brain science that that okay yeah that that boys brains are wired different than girls brains and so boy, when I just remember boys, when I was in ELC they like made us girls do more spatial stuff because they were like you need more of this and then the boys didn't have to do it because they were already like way better or they would test us and like the boys would score off the charts with whatever spatial thing it was and I'd be like barely passing the thing because I'm just well and like and again I think that that's why my son picked it up right away because he has no problems with lefts and rights and all that whole and I my I still have to use my hands to figure out which shoe to put on first so like I don't I mean I mean maybe it's because women have too many tabs open in their browser at one time that could be if we could close some tabs and only have one tab for spatial reasoning open then maybe we'd be really good at it I feel like men at most have two at most men at most have one really you don't think a man could have two tabs open in his brain if one of the tabs is if one of the tabs is keep breathing and keep your heart beating that can be one of them <laughs> the other tab okay. is whatever they're working on at that moment that's okay how, that's how their brains are wired okay. it's facts all it's, right you can look at a ct scan you'll see it okay uh anyway with louis when he shared his discovery with the optical activity and the racemic mix or whatever he shared it with another scientist the guy said quote my dear son, I have loved science so deeply that this stirs my heart. Same, Aww. dude. Like, same, my dude. It did stir I, my heart. I want I'm a nerd, that we should but put I love it. on a t-shirt and sell it. <laughs> I have loved science so deeply, it stirs my heart. Yeah. Isn't that cute? It is cute. I liked I it. it. All right. So he's in Strasbourg with his wife. He's teaching, and he does that for five years. In 1854, he moves on. Um, he becomes the Dean of Sciences at the University of Lille which is super north in France, like almost mm-hmm. at the Belgian border. So he yeah. went from being in like, like kind of southwest, uh, excuse me, southeast. I mean, east, but eastern France, southern east, southeastern France, anyway, to like way up there by Belgium. But yeah. so he goes up there, but Lille was a big industrial city at the time. So there was a feeling there that science should be used to solve real problems, which was different from a lot of academic take on science at that mm-hmm. point, because they pure science right like you do things because it's pure science whatever so I mean I agree like I did research in grad school on something that was going to be a tangible application because I'm like why would I make waste all my time doing this if there's not like a perp like I like when there's a application right yeah so Pasteur luckily for all of us embraced that and did think that putting science to practical use was a worthwhile endeavor Mm -hmm. So he does some big thing in science. I don't know. He disproved the idea of spontaneous generation or something. Are you talking about this? It's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. Are you talking about it? I'm not really talking about it, but like what he, he basically proved that you can't, that something has to have an origin. Things don't spontaneously generate. And that led directly to like the big deal thing that both Koch and Pasteur are known for. So yeah so I mean a big deal um it seems straightforward to me like things don't just spontaneous but anyway but it wasn't it revolutionized science yeah it was a big deal and Pasteur basically has now vaulted into super high recognition visibility and so forth with with his work I mean this is a science rock star right puts him now up into this category so um interestingly in 1857 Louis does not get elected to the Academy of Sciences Mm -hmm. in Paris 
but probably because he hasn't really been in Paris for much of his career because they're snooty little they are crazy people over there how many times have we been like oh there's drama at the academy literally every season or like at least twice yeah any season we talk about french scientists like drama with the academy anyway but so he's been there when he was at ens but like other than that he hasn't really been there but interestingly in october of that same year he gets offered director of scientific studies at ens which was a super big deal job right yeah but it didn't actually have any lab space for louis which was going to be problematic if he wanted to continue his research yeah no big deal. He just set up his lab in a few attic rooms. Just, you know, he found an attic space. Never mind, work. the attic room was so low, he couldn't stand up straight in his lab because he only just stand up straight in the lab. I'm going to sit down and look um, at this microscope. It's fine. Yeah, sure. Even a few years later, when he somehow found five rooms on two floors and some other building to expand his lab, I don't really know where he's finding, just finding rooms, but okay. Um, he was still pretty short on space and equipment. Um, he, or I mean, short on space and his equipment was like still shoved under the stairs, you know, just mm-hmm. in random, you know, still not like what you would think of some very hoity-toity, well to, well-to-do scientific yes. rock star, right? Yes. Anyway, notably Louis becomes such a big deal. He gets to meet Boney 3. Wow. Which would have been a big deal for him because he grew up on his dad's stories of fighting for old Boney. Yeah. Bony one back there one yeah um not that Bony three was really much to write home about but you know i mean whatever yeah oh you know so from 1865 to 1869 louis was traveling to la france which is in the southern part of the country kind of close-ish to montpellier and he was dealing with a silkworm problem yes i don't know are you talking about the silkworm problem okay Yes, I'm going to talk about the silkworm problem. I think that was a big deal. See, there's just all these things where I'm like, well, I think that's a big deal. Skip that. Well, I think that's a big deal with science. Skip that. So It was know. a big deal, yeah. Um, at ENS, Louis was actually given a lot of administrative duties, which a lot of people questioned. I think people were like, I think people were mad that some country bumpkin was coming in and getting like a fancy job. Okay, but like he clearly had proved himself, guys. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, so a lot of people question his ability to do like the administrative side, but he was really good at his job and turned out to be really strict as an administrator. So strict, in fact, that in 1867, there was a student protest and Louis lost his job. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, he lost his job as the director of whatever, but he was kept on at the school as the director of the chemistry lab. And then he was also given permission to teach classes over at the Sorbonne. Okay. Where Marie Curie was, right? Yeah. In 1868, Louis had a stroke, and right after, he couldn't move or um, move the left side of his body or speak. Yeah. And he's only 45, yeah. and he will, spoiler alert, live for 30 more years. Yep. Um, he did eventually, I never knew this about him, he did eventually recover some ability to speak mm-hmm. and walk and use of his hands, mm-hmm. um, like his left side of his body, but nothing like before the stroke, no, um, yeah, which makes me really sad for him. He was only 45 and he probably could have done, I mean, he would have relied on his research students at that point to carry out most of the work, you know, and that's like, that's he didn't want to work for him like that. Yeah. And he was probably really rough, tough on them, I imagine. Mm-hmm. And they probably got really aggravated with him, mm-hmm. but he's just trying to feel as involved as possible. I don't know. It was, it just it seems like a really horrible, horrible situation, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I feel like he came back from that through sheer force of will because probably the doctors were like, this is the best you've got. And he said, yeah, beer. Well, he's in France. (laughs) Yeah. Hold my champagne. And like, you know. Yeah. So then guess what happens in 1870? Another stupid war. And it's Frenchies versus Prussia again. And this war forced Louis back to Arbois and out of Paris Mm because things were getting dicey. But Louis' son was now old enough to fight, so he was actually in the war, which, given what he is one of two remaining kids at this point, had to be really stressful on the family, like, on Louis and Marie, because, like, one, he's your only son, and two, um, like, we only have two kids left. Like, we don't have any more to spare, you know? Like, it's not not like kids are ever to spare, but you know what I mean? Like, we've already lost three. Like, we can't. We can't. There was yeah. a time in history when if you were the oldest or the only son, you didn't go to fight because you right. had to be the heir. So, like, right, you know how serious the conflict was that Louis was right. You know, Louis' son went. Yeah. Well, I think he wanted to. From what I yeah. could tell, like, he wanted to. Yeah, it was serious. He was um, serious about it. Yeah. So Prussia sacked Paris, effectively won the war like a year later. And Louis was so mad about it that he gave back in his honorary doctorate some German institution had given him. He gave it back. Yeah. Which was petty, but I like it. I don't yeah. know. I don't hate I it. Kinda like it. I don't hate it, but I really like that you're talking about all of this bad blood between Germany and France because it is literally central to the brawl. I mean, we did talk about Bob when he did live in Germany, which i happened to mention would have been prussia at the time yeah so so yeah i have a feeling this plays into our brawl somewhere in a big in a big way okay okay so now i'm gonna just zip along 15 years or so because this will be the major part of louis life that maggie's gonna be discussing because it's you know germs and anthrax or tv i don't know whatever i don't even know whatever 1886 Louis' health isn't great. He's especially dealing with heart trouble now at this point. Mm-hmm. In 1888, following Louis' wild success with a lot of things, um, I think uh, there's like a rabies treatment. We're going to talk about that too. This time. Okay. Yep. But like the money came pouring in, I think, after that. He, um, this, the, the, the quote unquote rabies thing you're talking about made him yeah. a bazillionaire. Yeah. Like pouring in. The Pasteur Institute was open in Paris. And Louis served as the director until his death in 1895. So those last years of his life, he did get to spend in the lab as best as he could, but also with his family. Um, so his daughter had children, and he loved his grandkids a lot. And he made time to visit with them. But, you know, the stroke and heart trouble and everything just wore his body down. He lost mobility. He lost speech, etc. Like, towards the end, just, you know. Yeah. Sounds awful. Sounds like a terrible way to go. Um, yeah. Just because his mind, I'm sure, was still sharp as could be. Yeah. And he's it, his body, I think his body him failed physical. him before his mind did. And that's the worst. Yeah. And just, yeah, sad. Super sad. Um, so he died on September 28th, 1895, at the age of 72. So, yeah, that's kind of, again, a really, really, really feels condensed version of Louis' life trying to avoid most mention of anything related to science well which yeah. is hard i get it i get that that's hard because he did literally all the science both he and bob did literally all the science and all the science it was a lot and like most of what's written especially it was more so with bob 
just like literally anything that's written about him is just like let me tell you about a science and it's like he was born he had a wife he died like there's not and and no one cares about any of that they just care about the fact that he is like the father of my guys i still want to know about the alleged homewrecker heady I'm just telling you. Yeah, like we still have questions about that. So for all of you scientists out there who plan on being, doing great things, not like awesome things, but big things or awesome things too, whichever use of great you want to use, that's fine. All of you, write down all the tea that happens to you. Like if you got into it with someone named Heather when you were seven, you need to write about it. You need to drag her. I want to hear about you getting sent to the principal's office because you socked someone in the face when you were in second grade you know right like Like, yeah i don't i don't want to just know that you like were good at spelling fine but also tell me the t please so as you're writing down as you're cataloging your life consider the people who are going to come after you who are going to be like and then guess what she did yeah make it entertaining for us yeah your life is a more interesting story than you think trust me I mean, don't worry about the fact that you might, you know, die and people are going to talk trash about you someday. Just give us something entertaining to talk about, you know? Yeah. And if you keep the right kind of records, we'll talk trash about the people that you talk trash about. Home yeah. record heady. So. Yeah. Alleged. Alleged. Home alleged. record heady. <laughs> alleged. Allegibly. I am covering our legal bases today. Yes. Anyway. Um, so yeah, I think we need to actually hear, well, not all, all the science, because again, it would take 800 years, it but would. I think we need to hear some of the science and why they actually were brawling, because I still don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. Let's take a break, and then I will tell you, I will tell you just exactly why it's important to study grammar. Okay. It is. Trust me. All right. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how good it is with really excellent concept explanations and visual learning thousands of practice questions with explanations, and full MCAT practice tests. If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person. MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs with dates throughout the year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder is high quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. Let's get into the outrageous amount of science that we have to cover with these two guys because they did they both did everything and the honestly the only legitimate way I know we kind of alluded to this before but the only legitimate way that we can really cover Louie and Bob is by having them in a brawl because it allows me to give kind of an overview of their science versus having to do a whole episode or 10 
on these people. We could do a whole season on these two people because they really did a lot of amazing stuff and a lot of important science that we that matters a lot to us today. But their brawl mm -hmm. is pretty rad. So okay. yeah, so let's get into that. Their feud actually is pretty legendary too. Everybody kind of knows about it and knows that they didn't get along. I don't. Apparently it's very well known. So, all right, listeners out there, which one of you great studious listeners actually knew this before today? Yeah, tell us if you knew that Bob and Louie had like a thing going on, like like a bad thing going on at at one point in in their relationship. Actually, it lasted until they died. But anyway, let's let's start with Louie since he's older. Brenna mentioned in a broad way some of the stuff that Louis did, um, proving that spontaneous generation wasn't a thing in 1860-ish. And that's the idea where all life can just spontaneously happen if there is moisture and warmth, which is clearly balderdash. That's not a thing. <laughs> Louis proved that I know. Louis proved that it wasn't a thing thanks to his work with bacteria and yeast, and especially with the whole fermentation process where beer and wine are concerned. Uh, in fact, when he heated wine and found out that it kept the wine from spoiling, we call it pasteurization, and we use that method to this day to kill bacteria and stuff and keep it from spoiling quickly. And that was mm -hmm. 1864. The following year... For which I'm very grateful. Thank you, yes, Louis. Thank you for the pasteurization. Love that so much. It, like, I enjoy milk because, because of you. You know? Well, milk will spoil. I don't know. It's what I think of, like unpasteurized apple cider is one thing. I'm gonna drink that fast. It's fine. But milk, I don't know. I need a couple extra days on it. Anyway. Isn't it? I'm pretty sure when you leave Amsterdam, some of the cheeses you can bring back with you, but some you can't because if they, because over there they'll make some cheeses and they're not pasteurized and you're not allowed to bring those back to the States. Like there are rules about your cheese importation I feel like that would be I know this thing. I know this because I have brought cheese back from Amsterdam. And when you go to the store, you like we double check, like, oh, we can take this back to the States, right? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, this is pasteurized. All of these things are pasteurized. Anyway. Okay, so you can no get cheese places that are not pasteurized, like that don't go through that pasteurization process or I don't know, right. but any anyway. Well, because bacteria are part of the cheese baking process, but you don't want to like hang out in there, you know? Like, I mean, you want it to do its job and then leave. Right. So, yes, yeah. pasteurization is super important. Um, and that was 1860. That's why they tell pregnant women not to have soft cheeses, too, in case right. they're not well, and, um, and deli meat, because that's not, you know, when you when you go to the deli and they cut, you know. You don't pasteurize meat. No, but there's still stuff. Well, and Because you, you can't. Wouldn't it be cool if Louis had figured out how to pasteurize, you know, cold cuts? I don't know. And they didn't obviously have this. Anyway, I don't know why they tell women not to have soft cheese when they're pregnant, because at least in the States, I'm not sure you can get maybe like the like the fresca. There's a name for it, like the Spain or the Mexican. Queso fresco? Like, for, yeah, that, some of those, maybe if you go to like their markets, maybe you can get the non-pasture. But maybe. But most of the cheese you get here is like not it's full safe. of dangerous bacteria but anyway they still say like all the literature it's been several years but still even however many years ago it was like don't eat soft cheeses anyway sorry that was a big detour 
that's okay. Uh, we pasteurization. I got cheese on my mind, y'all. We all do. Like, why? Why do people even advertise for cheese? We're all going to buy it. Just stop. <laughs> Save your money. And this part of the world, anyway, might because hard. Not everybody is lactose tolerant. People, we, you know, you yeah. and I live in North America, and both of us are lactose tolerant, but not everybody is. They do make lactose-free cheese. That sounds gross. Is it just Someone the sawdust there. at that point? I don't know. Yeah, no, my sister-in-law will eat, eat. My sister-in-law will eat the lactose-free cheese on pizza. Gross. And Can stuff. someone please tell us if you've had lactose-free cheese and if it's remotely similar to actual cheese in any way? Because I feel like it would be a very distant cousin at that point. My sister-in-law says that it's not. It doesn't taste as good, but it's 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 fine. In the context of pizza, I don't know that she eats it like all the time, but in the context of pizza, I guess it's, it's fine. It sounds gross. Well, it's either that or if you're lactose intolerant, like, you know. Well, mm. if, if you're lactose intolerant, lactate. <laughs> I have a friend who, well, Maggie's who, solving all of your problems. I am. I have a friend who is lactose intolerant. And there are some weekends when she's like, mm -mm, I got to have the cheese this weekend. And she takes her lactate and it's fine. So it's not, it's not, it's not like a way of life. It's like she does every day. But when she knows mm -hmm. that she just can't avoid it or doesn't want to avoid it, she makes it okay. Enough about cheese and pasteurization. That's something that he did. We all know. In but maybe get a snack for the rest of this. Oh, yeah. You're going to need it because we got a ways to go. We, we haven't right, even get some cheese. scratched the sur surface. So the year after that, in 1865, Louis was asked by a friend to figure out what was killing a whole bunch of silkworms in the south of France. Now, remember, Brittany, you had a question about this and you didn't know, mm -hmm. like, whatever. We are not going to go into how silk okay. is made. We're not talking about any of that. Because it's gross, guys. It's disgusting. It grosses me out so bad. I think we already said this, but I'm just going to reiterate. I don't like silkworms. I don't like the concept of silk whatsoever. I just know. Mm. which well, thank is you. understandable if you Plus don't know how it's made we encourage you to google it maybe maybe we'll do a mini sewed series on things that you wouldn't things that you don't like <laughs> that you need like i mean i don't need silk do you own a single thing in your closet that is actual silk no no because you're a mom what mom Mom buys a $900 shirt, silk shirt, because she has kids. No. Okay. I'm also a pavo, I mean, so it wouldn't matter if I was yeah, a mom or not. Pavos, but, but, you know, silk has you other, silk has other applications beyond clothing. But again, beyond the scope today. The point is okay. that if you're French and you're living in the south of France, your livelihood depends on silkworms and their disgusting silk making habits. There was this mystery disease killing the silkworms and threatening okay. the entire textile industry, okay? I mean, that's problematic. It, it really was. Louis figured out that it was a parasite and also a disease that I'm going to mispronounce, but I'm pretty sure it's called flashery. Someone, again, someone who knows about silkworms and textiles, you can tell me. But this disease is passed on when a silkworm eats mulberry leaves where other silkworms have left droppings. So it's passed yeah. through microbes in poop. Yeah. The poop disease. It is for silkworms. A poop parasite. We need to be specific about 
what poop disease it is because we got another one coming up that we're going to have to deal with. So this is oh, mulberry eight. on mulberry leaves from silkworm, silkworm poop parasite. Yes. And the, the and there are also microbes in the poop that are causing this other disease. Louis figured mm -hmm. all of this out and told them how to prevent the disease and the parasite. It was a pretty big deal. Like it, it saved, it saved silk in France and it was this whole thing. Okay. But this whole idea of microbes would have a huge impact on the world of science because this is the beginnings of germ theory, which we'll not be covering today. We say that for later in the season because we get to draw okay. on some other BAs for that one. It's literally a whole giant story on its own. Anyway, okay. microbes are a thing. And Louis can show that they cause disease in animals and bugs and stuff. He was okay. hoping to be the first to show that they cause disease in people. But we got to talk about Bob before we get into that. So put that in okay. your satchel. Just satchel that. Okay. Louis doesn't stop his work with, well, there's bacteria and it causes disease. Bye. No, he wanted to stop the bacteria from causing disease. He wanted to expand on the idea of immunity that had been dealt with years earlier by Edward Jenner, who we will be covering at some point. But immunity is the idea that multicellular organisms can resist harmful microorganisms in some way. Okay. Thanks to chickens with cholera, yes, seriously, Louis was able to show that okay. if you survive exposure to a weakened form of a microbe, you can resist infection by the same stronger pathogen or germ, okay? That brings okay. us to the concept of attenuation. This is a big deal too, okay? Attenuating a pathogen means to make it weaker. One way Louis showed that you can do that is to repeatedly, repeatedly subculture it. So you culture it and then you culture it again, you culture it, you keep culturing it from that culture and it just gets mm -hmm. weaker. I think the best way to describe what happens is like when you take a picture of a picture, like if you repeatedly take a picture of a picture and just keep doing that a hundred or 200 times, the picture is going to be of worse mm -hmm. and worse quality because you're losing information. That's kind of how it works for pathogens too. So Louis used this old chicken cholera virus that was kind of like it was old. It wasn't like new and fresh and exciting. It was like kind of past its prime. But he infected some chickens with it and they survived. And then when he shot them up with fresh chicken cholera, they survived that too. Ooh. So, yes, attenuated vaccines are almost going to be a thing at that point. Not quite. We're we're headed toward attenuated vaccines, okay? And Louis was going to apply- Was smallpox after this? I guess it must have been. No, because that's inoculation. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. But right. it was so, the first inoculation. Yes, hence why I said we're going to yeah. do Edward Jenner later. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. We're dealing with him later, but he was earlier. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Sorry. But Louis Just is going to- Just get my timeline. That's okay. Louis is going to apply this idea to anthrax. And that's where the rivalry with Bob is going to begin. So let's leave Louis there for a second and bring you up to speed on Bob, who is younger. Okay. Bob, like Louis, totally brilliant. He was a highly respected German doctor, as we heard from Brenna. He mm -hmm. hated that he couldn't figure out what made his patients sick. He was very concerned with the etiology of disease, 
and etiology is the cause or set of causes of what makes people sick. Mm -hmm. So he was a country doctor in the 1870s, if you'll recall, and he was carrying around a little hand lens, like a little magnifying glass, and looking at mm -hmm. sick people and sick animals to see if he could figure out what is making them sick. He got especially interested in animals that died of anthrax. Now, when we say anthrax, we're usually talking about scary white powder that terrorists send to people that have happened in the United States. It's ridiculous. But to be more specific, the disease anthrax is caused by inhaling or ingesting the spores of Bacillus anthracis bacteria. This mm -hmm. bacteria is just out there in the soil, vibing, mm -hmm. and animals come into contact with it all the time. Back before Bob and Louie were around, if your cow or sheep or whatever got a sudden and super high fever and then died, you know they were infected with anthrax. But it would be super cool if you could prevent the loss of livestock because waiting until your animal starts dr literally dropping dead is not a great time to say, hmm, might be anthrax around here. <laughs> so Bob started studying. What he would do is he would look at the blood of goats and other animals that were healthy. And then the ones that died of anthrax, obviously not healthy. The blood of the infected animals had stuff in it, like rods and sticks, mm -hmm. that the healthy animal blood did not have in it. And so Bob's like, man, if those rods and sticks were the cause of the illness, that would explain everything. Why is Because, you know, their blood is different. That they're, let's, let's, mm -hmm. let's explore. So he set about trying to figure that whole thing out. Um, okay, so this is a little bit, a little bit gross, but necessary to necessary. It's a little bit gross. Okay, what he you did? Poop again? No, eye fluid. Oh, that's less gross than poop. Well, he took fluid from the eye of an ox, and added a super small amount of infected blood to it, and he was then able to observe anthrax bacilli without all the other blood stuff in it okay mm -hmm. when he took a little sliver of sterilized wood and added a tiny bit of this fluid with anthrax bacilli in it and put it into a mouse's tail the mouse died of anthrax <laughs> why did he put it in a mouse's tail because he wanted to see if what was in that blood was the thing that was making animals sick. And the best way to do that is to put it into a mouse. He but not, okay, maybe I just misunderstood you. He used the wood to like jab the mouse? He inserted this, it was like a literal sliver, microscopic sliver, like a sliver that you would pull out of your hand with tweezers, okay? okay. He, put, he put the infected stuff on that and then inserted oh. that into the he mouse. Shoved it into the tail. And the mouse died of anthrax. We so, didn't have syringes by this point, did we? No. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, no. So we talked about them, and I can't remember. Anyway, I can't remember either. Probably but I, I don't think it would not not the kind that would have been very helpful in all of this science, quite okay. frankly. So Bob examined the blood of that mouse, and he saw the rods and the sticks that he had found mm -hmm. in the livestock blood. Ooh. So he was the first guy, this is huge, he was the first guy to successfully show that one certain kind of microbe caused a specific disease. Okay. Nobody realized that at the time, but that's exactly what he did. 
it would occur to people later. Yeah. They're like, oh, remember when Bob mm -hmm. did that thing? That's what that was. <laughs> and by the way, this kind of culture that I'm talking about where you use fluid and you isolate a microbe and all that, it's called a hanging drop culture. And Bob was the mm. only one using it at the time, but biologists do experiments this way like all the time now. Biologists, if you're listening, tell me if I got that right because I'm not a biologist and I wasn't sure if I understood that, but that's what I read. Apparently it's a really good way to study bacteria in isolation, which, you know, yeah, makes sense. So all that was great, but he still didn't answer the biggest question that he was dealing with. Bob wanted to know why the disease disappeared and reappeared because that's one of those wild things about anthrax. Certain fields were avoided by farmers because if you put animals there, they always died. And Bob, unsurprisingly, wasn't satisfied with the that field is cursed theory that was what <laughs> everybody thought. I mean, maybe it could be, or let's do some tests and see if there's something else. So he did those tests and he found spores. Oh, huge deal. Anthrax will make little endospores, but not when it's in a living animal or in cold temperatures, but it will develop in dead animals. Okay. Hmm. Briefly, endospores are a way that bacteria survive really harsh conditions like lack of nutrition. When there is a okay. shortage of food, for example, the bacteria will produce a hard protein shell which seals the bacterial DNA off from the surrounding environment. It's like a little cocoon. But instead of a butterfly coming out when conditions are right, the germ comes out and reinfects everything. Gross. It's really gross. Anthrax spores in particular are resistant to like everything. You need a 10% solution of sodium hypochlorite household bleach to be in contact mm -hmm. with the spores for at least 10 minutes to kill them. And even then, some will survive. Botulism is the same, right? It has endospores and stuff, and it's like it lays dormant until a certain time, right? Isn't botulism, botulism I believe, yes. Again, Spoiler thank alert. you to okay. TPWKY. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. yes. So gotcha. it was a really yeah. big, it was a really big deal that Bob discovered these spores. And so by 1875-76, Bob could culture the anthrax bacteria, which means he could grow it at will anytime he wanted. He could show that it was the cause of the disease, explain the optimal growing conditions for the bacteria, and show that it could form spores in certain conditions. Now that he understood that anthrax bacteria could survive via endospore in the soil, Bob would publish his first paper called The Etiology of Anthrax Based on a Life Cycle of Bacillus Anthracis, which is actually not you too- love paper names. It's not too obnoxious of a title name, quite frankly. I mean, this one's okay. Okay, I've read several that are just, just the same. It's just when you say it, you think it's fine. Oh, maybe. Just saying. I mean, he demonstrated his work at the University of Breslau and it amazed everybody. And so from this work, we get Koch's postulates, which are as follows. One, the microorganism must be found in abundance in all organisms suffering from the disease, but should not be found in healthy organisms. Two, the microorganism must be isolated from a diseased organism and grown in pure culture. 
three, the cultured microorganism should cause disease when introduced into a healthy organism. And four, the microorganism must be re-isolated from the inoculated, diseased, experimental host and identified as being identical to the original specific causative agent. Quick okay. note on those. I mean, those are those are all great. But quick note on those. The first one isn't necessarily true because turns out, as he's about to find out, that things like cholera can exist in someone without causing disease. And we are coming up on that in a second. Also, mm. yeah, there are some bacteria that cannot, with current technology, be grown in culture. That doesn't make them any less bacteria. It just means we can't grow them in culture. Um, but those Got are like it. the only exceptions, okay? Otherwise, these postulates still form the basis for germ theory and parts of microbiology. Yeah. Bob's mentor hypothesized all of this before Bob got to it, but Bob was able to prove all of it, which is why he gets credit. So this anthrax stuff is a really yeah. big deal, okay? Okay. Now we come to the meat of the brawl because Louis is looking at anthrax, Bob is looking at anthrax. Bob discovered mm -hmm. the anthrax bacteria and its life cycle. Louis was working on a vaccine for anthrax. Mm. The two met and had no beef in early 1881 in London. Great. Okay. But then Louis presents some of his works on an anthrax vaccine, which I'm going to go into detail about later. Okay. Louis made a passing comment about Bob's work with the spore formation, but then completely ignored the bulk of Bob's work in his publication this offended mm -hmm. bob okay remember bob had figured out how the culture anthracis bacillus and figured out its life cycle and etiology plus the whole spore thing and right. louis just like ignored all of that so bob publishes a paper in a well-known journal and accused louis of making errors and having impure cultures wait in the paper he called out another dude was the paper about calling louis out for being wrong or was his paper here's the correct stuff and also that guy was wrong the second thing you said actually here's, okay. what, here's what i think here's what i got from the whole thing that paper which was totally legit that bob published was a really good vehicle to drag louis hmm. okay. so yeah if that makes sense sure so He's, so Louis gets accused of using impure cultures, but and and Louis hasn't you hadn't used the techniques that Bob had used, and so Bob got real nasty about that. Let me give you a quote from Bob. Here's what he said: Of these conclusions of Pasteur on the etiology of anthrax, there is little which is new, and that which is new is erroneous. Up to now, Pasteur's work on anthrax has led to nothing. End quote. Well, okay. Yeah, shots fired. Like, wow, that was really. It's really shady. But okay, to be fair, Bob wasn't entirely wrong because the way that Louis was attenuating or weakening the anthrax bacilli was scientifically shaky. Bob noted that Louis had no way of knowing that he was working with the pure culture since he didn't use the method that Bob did. Also, remember that whole spore formation thing? Well, mm -hmm. Louis recognized that if spores formed, it would mess up his whole attenuation thing and the vaccine would just give the animal the disease in regular form. Like if you make it so that you can't weaken the bacteria because it's formed a spore, you're going to, you're going to try to inoculate it with the, with a non-attenuated virus or bacteria. And that's not going to help. Mm. Yeah. So 
he grew the organism in 43 degrees Celsius conditions because the spores won't form at that temperature. I read that in uh, two okay. sources, but it sounded wrong to me because it's like 110 degrees Fahrenheit, but okay. Why is that bad? I mean, it just, it, it just felt like the wrong, it just felt like a wrong number to me. Okay. I, I don't, I'm not a, like, I'm not a microbiologist. I don't know. It just felt like really 43 degrees Celsius. It just feels hot to me. I don't know. Well, he probably just needed it hotter than normal. And how good are, did they have a very precise ovens and heaters and whatever. It's like, oh, it's 43 degrees. Eh, sure. Why not? Just saying. I happen to know that oftentimes in experimental sections, when someone says that something refluxed for 36 hours, it's not because it needed a reflux for 36 hours. It's just that someone had a weekend or took a break and left it going for that long. I don't know. Sometimes just like experimental stuff is just like, because that's what I did. But not necessarily because you have to. Do, I don't. You know what I mean. I don't no, know. I don't makes... know anything about spores. But sometimes no. we just are like, oh, I had to leave it for this long. That makes sense. That actually makes sense. And that's actually that's actually going to come up in another episode we're going to do. So, either way, Bob found that spores would form at forty three degrees Celsius conditions. So Louis saying. And I grew these at 43 degrees Celsius. And Bob's like, no, you didn't because they'll form spores at that point. So yeah, okay, Bob had a point, but he was really nasty about it in that journal. And Louis was like 20 years older. Bob was kind of just starting his career when this all was happening. And Louis was well-established. Mm. So Louis could have ignored Bob. Could have. That's Louis's personality real quick. Louis was a bit dour. He did not have a sense of humor. Um, he was also he had kind of some crap hand dealt him in life. I'm just saying he did his as kids, we yep. his family absolutely as we talked about. So it's not surprising. He was also a bit aloof, kind of held himself apart, but he was also incredibly brilliant. So I wonder if some of that wasn't just the normal difficulty that really smart people have relating to less smart people. Because I've known I've had professors like that who are absolutely brilliant and literally could not make a sentence of small talk. I feel like he's the least fun Frenchman we've ever talked about. He really is really dragging him down because we've had some really colorful Frenchmen and he is not that well. Hold on. You'll, you'll see. Okay. Whatever the reason he had developed a bit of a reputation when someone would challenge his results, he would not only demand that they prove him wrong, he'd heap scorn upon their ignorance their lack of experimental skill, their obtuseness, or even their insincerity, according to Rene Dubot, one of Louis' biographers. All of this, plus a heavy dose of professional jealousy, probably contributed to a lot of his quarrels. Once at a lecture, mm. he was so combative and strident about how right he was that there was this 80-year-old scientist who he was like going after. He took serious offense and challenged him to a duel. An 80-year-old? challenged louis to a duel because louis was being such a jerk about his work oh i thought louis challenged the 80 year old either way it's weird but it would have been worse i feel like if louis had challenged the 80 year old um but louis was ready to throw hands i mean what's an 80 year old got to lose i know right? die in a duel i, I, I mean there's a way to go out when you're that's 80. pretty good for the for this 18th no 17th century where are we at 1800s 1800s yes they 19th they didn't, century. My bad. They, they didn't actually duel, but 
it does help you. Yeah, it is less fun, but it gets it kind of gives you an idea of the kind of guy Louis was. Honestly, though, it sounds like Louis met a younger version of himself in Bob, and wow, it did not go well. Really did not go well. In September of 1882, Louis decides to respond to Bob's paper. You know, the one where he was like, your science yeah, is bad wrong. and you're yeah. horrible. Yeah. But he didn't write a quiet letter or have a face-to-face like a mature, reasonable adult would do. He decided mm-hmm. to address Bob's paper at the Fourth International Congress of Hygiene and Demography in Switzerland. So like super public with a lot of peers around. Great choice. Really great choice, my dude. Yeah. I mean, if you want to humiliate, that's a place to do it. That is the place to do it. And now we come to the most ridiculous part of the whole brawl. Adjectives. Mm-hmm. Let's, set, let's set the scene. Okay. Louis, who is at the height of his fame, is delivering his paper and his response to Bob. Okay. Louis, being French, speaks only in French. Okay. Bob, who is German, doesn't speak much French. Only enough to be dangerous, yeah. you might say, as we will see. Mm-hmm. Bob is listening to Louis' speech, and Louis is talking about his own experimental practices. The very okay. practices that Bob had criticized. Uh-huh. Bob, in what can only be described as a huge breach of etiquette, stands up in the middle of the hall during the speech. During his talk? And Ooh. interrupts Louis. Ooh. Louis didn't speak German. So he's like, right. what the heck is this? So like, rude. And told Bob to shut up and sit down pretty much in those words. Okay. Yeah. I oh mean, he's I would give, wrong. I know. I mean, they're both right and they're both wrong. And I would have given anything to be in the audience in that moment. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. But when Louis gets done, Louis finishes his spiel, his presentation. Bob mm-hmm. asks to respond, and so he does. In German. Well, okay, here's what he said. When I saw in the program that Monsieur Pasteur was to speak, I attended the meeting eagerly, hoping to learn something new about this very interesting subject. I must confess that I have been disappointed as there is nothing new in the speech. I did not believe it would be useful to respond here to the attacks which Monsieur Pasteur has made on me for two reasons. First, because the points of disagreement between us relate only indirectly to the subject of hygiene, and it was a hygiene conference. And second, because I do not speak French well, and Monsieur Pasteur does not speak German at all, so that we are unable to engage in a fruitful discussion. So basically, Bob is saying that he's got a rebuttal, but it's beyond the scope of the conference subject matter. And since he and Louis don't speak the same language, it's probably a waste of time to hash it out in person. And he might have a point. Okay. But Louis says, well, Bob, maybe if you were able to follow the lecture, you'd understand the new material that was, in fact, presented today. Oh, okay. But let's back up real quick here. I told you that he stood up and interrupted Louis. What could possibly have provoked him to do that? Well, when Louis was speaking, he referred several times to the German collected works, recoyer, allemand. What Bob heard was le goyer, allemand. Recoyer and le goyer. Very close. Okay. And I and I recognize my pronunciation isn't perfect. I'm I'm doing a very intentional phonetic pronunciation because they sound very okay. similar. The second one, Le Goyer, 
means pride or arrogance. So Bob felt attacked because he thought that Louis was talking about the German collected arrogance. Oh. Not the German collected works. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Someone who observed the whole thing said that the audience was shocked and uncomfortable because they mostly didn't understand what had happened. They didn't realize that it was because of this one word, this one little adjective, arrogance versus works. Arrogance is the adjective. Oh, okay. It should have been a noun. Okay. Okay. Guess who else didn't realize what happened besides the audience? Louis and no. Bob. Louis didn't understand that Bob had mistranslated, misheard a word, and Bob couldn't believe that Louis would personally insult him in such a way. Hmm. So that, literally, that little word set off at least a decade of actual hatred between the two men. Robert huh. Gaines, yeah, I know. Robert Gaines, who wrote one of my sources, said, quote, their relationship was not one simply of scientific colleagues or even rivals. For about a decade, the word that can best describe the relationship between Coke and Pasteur is hate. For reasons on every possible level, they detested each other, and the two did not hide their contempt for each other, end quote. Wow. Yeah, wow, is that true? Because three months after the conference, Bob published an attack on Louis. He criticized his professional efforts and then got personal pointing out that Louis wasn't even a doctor. So what business did he have getting involved in medicine? Okay. Louis fired back with, listen, buddy, if you want me to correct all your nonsense, name the time and place. You're a noob. You got into science after 1876 and all the most famous people already have done the best work. Loser. And here's the final swipe, a direct quote from Louis. There are in your brochure numerous sections. Brochure. Can you imagine your scientific paper being called a brochure? Oh my gosh. <laughs> there are in your brochure numerous sections where the impertinence of mistake, the way Pascal would say it, is really too much. So, much shade. Very much nastiness. They hate each other, clearly. Yeah. To be realistic, although... Did they, they wrote to each other, but one wrote in French and one wrote in German, or they wrote at each other? They wrote but at each how other. Is he reading, but then how is he reading his papers if he didn't speak French or well, German or whatever? They had colleagues. Because um, at the international conference, Bob was there with a colleague who heard mm. the same thing, but not. So there, there was a little bit of like, oh. you know, they, there were ways for them to find out what the other was writing, you know? <laughs> But to be realistic, though, it wasn't just the mistranslation of a word that exploded this conflict. Bob and Louis were a German and a Frenchman. Both France and Germany were extremely nationalistic during this time, and these countries had been fighting about anthrax stuff before Louis and Bob had entered the scene. Also, hmm. Brenna mentioned this, but Louis hated Germany thanks to the Franco-Prussian War and actually yes. returned... He returned an honorary degree yeah. from the University right. of Bonn. I think we talked about that, right? He yeah. called it odious. odious. Yeah. Like, wow. Bob also hated France because of the Franco-Prussian War. And sure, they disagreed about whether or not anthrax spores form at a certain temperature, but that was coupled with a dispute about attenuation. According to Bob, if a microbe changes, his postulates are not satisfied. But Louis's methods mm. literally demanded change in a microbe that would produce immunity, not disease. 
Today, mm. we understand that bacteria tend to conserve their form, but they can attenuate. So Bob and Louie were both right. Oh, okay. But, but this is the beginning of germ theory, the very beginning of it. Like they invented it. So it's understandable that these guys would think that those two ideas couldn't simultaneously be true. Yeah, that's true. You know, so clearly neither Bob nor Louis was able to tolerate being told they were wrong. So kind of toxic. But the fight raged on like this for a while. Who wins? How did this end? There's a short answer to that and there's a long answer. I'll give you the short answer here and I'll go into more detail on the legacy. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure that these guys even realized what their feud was about. Honestly, we know that they were actually arguing two sides of the same issue and they were both right. Louis was able to very publicly demonstrate his success with an anthrax vaccine in May 1881, which is one mm -hmm. of the events that led to this whole brawl. And so let's talk about Louis's vaccine. Remember, I told you that Louis had said he kept anthrax spores from forming at a certain mm -hmm. temperature, thereby allowing for attenuation, all that stuff. Well, he used that attenuated anthrax to make a vaccine. Medical people and veterinarians were very skeptical of it because this guy's a chemist. How is he doing medical things? So again, people who were in the medical community were very suspicious of letting scientists who were outside the community mm -hmm. in to mess with things because they didn't have, they, they didn't, how could they possibly right. know? Turns out they are actually very good at it, but that's not the prevailing thought at the time. Okay. So Louis said, hold my French beer, which is far superior to German beer, by the way. Because remember, he did a lot of work with fermentation. So that's actually a pretty intellectual joke. You're welcome. And he agreed to a very public demonstration of his anthrax vaccine. His enemies were mm -hmm. hoping that the whole thing would expose Louis as a charlatan who was lucky, not a scientist who could actually reliably show results. He was given... So they wanted him to kill something or somebody with his anthrax vaccine they were yeah. hoping for that they were actively hoping that he would manage to kill things with his vaccine so-called <laughs> vaccine yeah like guys oh, okay. like can we pump our brakes for just a minute here this is not the best way to go about this but yeah he okay. was he was given 48 sheep two goats and 12 cows half the animals were given the anthrax vaccine Half of them did not get the anthrax vaccine. Then okay. he injected all the animals with fresh anthrax bacteria. When the spectators showed up to view the results, people were astonished. The half that got the vaccine were happy and eating and totally normal. Of the half mm -hmm. that didn't, all but four were dead. Two of them dropped dead when everybody was there for the reveal party. Great. Yeah. When you know, these people need to get better hobbies they're these very are, macabre these, these are the kind of people that would go to a hanging though i mean it's or there's nothing there's no tv guillotining guillotining a beheading a beheading yeah. guillotine. okay all right whatever anyway you know when what I you meant. have been beheaded by a guillotine people would go watch yes yeah yeah so when louis published about this bob jumped in with the your cultures aren't pure stuff that started the whole thing off mm -hmm. Okay, so that experiment is what kicked off the whole thing. Because then they had the back and forth, and then there was the conference, and then we get to the point where they hate each other's guts. Technically, you could say that Louis won because his vaccine worked and worked very well. He and his team made pots of money and saved hundreds of thousands of sheep 
from certain death, which mm. helped the farmers out tremendously. Right. So despite the fact that Louis was fighting with Bob this whole time, people were using Louis's vaccine to do a lot of good. But as I said, there's a longer answer to this with some more drama to include. Mm. So okay. I'm actually going to leave these two guys here for now. And we'll finish out okay. the result of their brawl in our legacy segment. Sound good? Okay. Yeah. Let's take a break. So it's sort of a trend this season that our BAs have a very clear and tangible legacy. These guys are obviously no exception because, you know, anthrax vaccine. But that's not all that they did. Mm -hmm. so let's continue with the story. I left you on a bit of a cliffhanger here with yeah. who won the brawl. And there is more drama to come. Mm -hmm. Anthrax was not the only disease that Louie and Bob were both involved with solving. Brenna alluded to this a little bit when she was talking about um, where her where these guys traveled. In 1883, there was a cholera pandemic in Egypt and India, and it was bad, like real bad. Bob and a team of Germans went to Egypt to figure out what caused cholera. And again, we're going to talk a lot about cholera later in the season, but for now... Bob was able to isolate cholera and show that a little microbe was the cause and that animals weren't susceptible to it. This particular form mm -hmm. of human cholera. Because remember, there's chicken cholera too. Oh, yeah. When Louis' team went to Egypt to deal with the outbreak, they couldn't find anything. So Bob definitely won that round. Bob did a better okay. job at isolating the cholera bacteria. Okay. But Louis's reputation only took a very small hit, all things considered, thanks to rabies. Okay. Mm -hmm. Quick detour into rabies. It's horrible, which we mentioned before. It is a viral disease spread in the saliva mm -hmm. of animals and leads to brain inflammation, i.e. death. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. Terrifying. Have, it's, it's terrifying. You have fever, headache, confusion, aggression, hydrophobia, which is fear of water, seriously, and hypersalivation. Mm -hmm. So you think of the dog foaming at the mouth who's super bitey and won't drink anything. That's rabies, and it does the same thing to people. Back in the time we're talking about, if you got rabies, you died a horrible, painful death. Thumbs down. If you listen to our mini-sode on quackery, we spent a lot of time talking about rabies yes. and all the horrible things. And if you haven't, go over to Patreon and listen to it because it's hilarious. Not the, not the dying of rabies part. That's not funny. <laughs> but some of the other stuff in there is very funny. Yeah. Okay. So, but before you died this horrible, painful death, they would brand the bite with a red hot iron, which sometimes cured people, but mostly not. So yeah, I just kind of died. But Louis had come up with a better and actually effective way of treating rabies. He published this paper called prevention of rabies, a method by which the development of rabies after a bite may be prevented. Okay. Which again, long title, meh, not a fan. But I am a fan well, of the- It tells you what it's going to be about. I know, it's very descriptive. But I did read this paper. This is one of those papers that I actually did read. It was printed in a book okay. that I had gotten about, about this whole thing. It's very interesting. Okay. Louis talks about his methods and how he did his experiments in great detail in his own words. And I like, I would give him an A if I was grading it as a lab report because I'm 99% sure that I could recreate his experiments and get similar results. Like that's how good this is. Because that's what you want. A good lab report is that someone else can recreate it and get the same 
were similar Mm -hmm. results that you did, right? So I love that. He's figured out how to cure rabies in dogs, but then he talks about trying to cure humans. Mm. Nobody had ever tried to do this kind of thing before. So guys, this paper is so rad. It's one of my favorite things I've read in my research for this podcast ever. it's, It's amazing. Louis goes into detail about how this kid was attacked by a rabid dog and had 14 wounds. 14. That's a lot. That's a lot. Louis and some colleagues took one look and were like, oh, he's getting rabies for show, which <laughs> makes the death of the child inevitable. Quote, inevitable. Yeah. That was what Louis wrote. He said, this kid's got rabies. Yeah. He's going to die. Mm-hmm. Since the kid was likely just waiting to die, Louis thought, hey, let's test the stuff I've been using to cure dogs on this kid. Because, huh? you know, why not? But Louis himself yeah. said, quote, I decided, not without lively and sore anxiety, to try the method, end quote. So even he's nervous to use this cure on a human, despite the fact that it's super successful on dogs. So the cure is made from the spinal cord of a rabbit who has died of rabies. The cord is preserved in a flask of dry air for 15 days, and 13 treatments of this kind are given over 10 days. And he later decided he didn't, I know, he decided he didn't need that many, but it, this was the first time. So like, we're, go, we had to like, go. you know, what? better safe than sorry. Cause... Exactly. If we're going for it, we're going the whole way. So it totally worked. Louis even double checked his result by giving the boy a form of rabies more virulent than even canine rabies. Louis not only cured the rabies that the boy had, but prevented him from getting again from a worse version. So this kid lives, and this news is huge. Doctors can yeah. maybe actually cure stuff now. Things mm. like cholera, typhus, syphilis, diphtheria, etc. This is big, and Louis got even more famous. And before you, again, those of you out there who are saying, what about smallpox? Brenna and I already discussed that. Okay, they were not curing smallpox, they were preventing it, and that's different. Plus, they were using cowpox to prevent smallpox, and Louis was using actual rabies to cure rabies. So Louis makes this happen, and it's big stuff. He's literally an international hero to this day because of all this incredible stuff and excellent science that he did. But what about Bob? Well, it's a great question. It is a great question. He had set out to find a way to cure a very common and contagious disease that affected lots of people in the 1800s, tuberculosis. In August of 1890, Bob said that he had found a substance that would halt the growth of tuberculosis bacilli. He said he wasn't totally finished with his work, but it looked very promising. Now, as the media often do, they messed up when they reported what Bob had said. They didn't mention that Bob had said he was doing more work, but it looked promising. The paper said that Bob had solved tuberculosis. Mm. Yeah. I was very secretive about all his work, too, but eventually he talked about the substance he called tuberculin. He had taken the bacteria and kept it in a glycerin solution for a while. He would then inject it just under the skin in patients that had tuberculosis. Hmm. He tested it on himself 
to make sure it was safe for humans. Like, dude, what if it wasn't? Well, oh my gosh. I mean, I, he probably was like, I can't kill somebody else on accident, so I'll just test it on myself. And that right there, that sentence right there, is the reason that I am doing a mini-sode on Patreon on people who test on themselves, because Bob <laughs> wasn't the only guy who did stuff like this. But he what? there were only guys. I looked for girls, and there weren't any. Imagine that. So, anyway. Most women think through the whole process. There is a, a recklessness to science that men enjoy engaging in. Women approach it from a very different a very very different point of view anyway listen to the patreon mm -hmm. episode you'll find out actually there's even an episode later this season that deals with it that's why i'm going into it so bob gets around to injecting other people with tuberculin patients with minor infections got better sometimes well so people were like cool tb is fixed but in 1891 they conducted an actual medical trial, which hadn't been done with tuberculin yet. Okay. Not only does tuberculin not provide any protection against TB, but over 55% of the patients showed no improvement in their symptoms. Oh, okay. That means that tuberculin is not a cure for TB. True. When they autopsied people who had died of tuberculosis after getting tuberculin, they noticed that the tuberculin actually activated latent bacteria. Oops. Yeah. So that's kind of a big failure. But yeah. all is not lost for Bob's reputation. Tuberculin is still around today. And I've been injected with it at least two times that I can remember. I've also never had TB because turns out that tuberculin is pretty good at diagnosing TB. Okay. People who work at hospitals or in nursing homes, which is uh, which is where I worked, so that's why I had to have this test, um, or in other places where TB risk is high, get a little shot of tuberculin under the skin. Now, Dad, this is for you. If you, for those of you who are sensitive about sharp on skin, I'm gonna give some details that are gonna make you feel gross. Okay, just be warned. What they do is they put a syringe needle into your skin, which is called a subcutaneous injection. They're not going into a vein. They're not going into muscle, just under the skin. They inject a little bit of tuberculin and a bubble forms under the skin. If the bubble stays there for a couple of days with no real change, you do not have tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. If it swells up and gets bigger than 10 to 15 millimeters, you might have been exposed to TB and will need more testing. However, this is a big caveat, you can get a false positive with this TB skin test, which is formally called the Mantoux test. Hmm. Ironic ironically, a French guy named Mantoux used Bob's work to develop this whole process, which I find to be hmm. perfect. Anyway, your health history has a significant effect on the result of this skin test, so sometimes something weird in your history will just cause a false positive. More commonly, people just have allergic reactions to the test, causing the area to swell and look like a positive result, but it's really not. So for people who have this kind of reaction, and I, I think dad is one of them, they get screened for TB with a chest x-ray. So dad or any other listeners out there who have experience with this can correct me if I'm wrong and we'll put it in an addendum, but I'm pretty sure that if you get a false positive with tuberculosis, you just get test um, chest x-rays as your test in the future. But overall, it's still effective enough to be in use today, and that's part of Bob's legacy. 
you also, well, the U.S. is one of, I think, only a handful, but other countries used to. I think they all have stopped at this point, but I don't know, actually, to be honest. But they have a, va- there's a vaccine, vaccine for TB. And if you've gotten that, you also react. Because my coworker lived not in the United States growing up. So she had the TB vaccine in wherever she was in, at the time. I can't remember if she's South America or Argentina or Brazil. But she has to, when she has to go get a TB test, she has to tell them, I have the TB vaccine. I'm going to test positive. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay. Like they don't, I mean, it doesn't really phase them, but she, she'll test positive for that reason. But it's, I mean, it's in her medical history or whatever. But yes. Right. I don't know how prevalent that is anymore, but there used to be TB vaccine given, not in the States. I don't know that it was ever given in the States, to be honest. I don't think it was either. From what I, from what I researched, it was not. Okay. I could be wrong on that though. So again, if we're wrong, tell me and I'll, and I'll correct. Um, I'll issue an addendum. But anyway, I'd say the lasting effect that Bob and Louie had and their brawl had on science and medicine deals with germ theory. The work that Louis and Bob did basically proved germ theory, which paved the way for microbiology and bacteriology to really be helpful to people because it did lead to curing diseases because that wasn't a thing until these guys got involved. Okay. And we're, we're definitely going to talk about how bad it was before germ theory. I'm really hyping that episode later in the season because I'm very excited about it. It's going to be so fun. But despite Louis and Bob's ups and downs, they really are both considered to be two of the most influential scientists ever. So yeah. definitely, definitely BAs for me. For sure. Um, I read a quote somewhere from an English surgeon, Stephen Paget, who once called Pasteur the most perfect man who has ever entered the kingdom of science. I feel like that's kind of a high praise, but yeah. yeah wow. The kingdom of science. Oh. Kingdom of science. Ooh, am I in the kingdom of science? I don't really know. You must know if be. I can. Maybe. I mean, anyway, so yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because at the time they were recognized, you know, I don't know, some of our BAs, it's like no one kind of realized they were BA in it initially, but it kind of feels they did a lot of significant stuff and even during their lifetime got to enjoy the benefits of all their scientific discovery, which I think is yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. Like, Louis be making bank after that rabies shot, guys. Like, so tons of money, money, money. So much money. So much so money. So much money. I mean, not that that's the only thing. Like, I bet he felt good about, like, you know, making sure kids didn't die from rabies because he lost children and probably, you know, didn't want other people to lose children. So it's great. But also, he got a lot of money. It's not like he so. was turning down those checks, though. Like, he said, yeah, yeah. This, is, this has helped humanity also. Go ahead and deposit it at the <laughs> bank for me. Thanks. At, at Le Banc. At Le Banc. <laughs> Merci. Um, so yeah, pretty interesting. Yeah, interesting and ridiculous because that one little little adjective trouble is uh mm. kind of what set the fuse, you know. I mean it would also help. Sorry, France. I'm just, you know, it would help if like the pronunciation of your words were actually different because 
y'all have these verbs where you say it the same, but there are like four and five extra letters added in that you just don't pronounce. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, I know English has got its quirks, but man, it is difficult to learn French because I'm learning it. But it is difficult because all the things sound the same and all these letters are there that don't say anything. And how do you know which ones don't? Because here's the thing. Here's the thing about German. If you see a letter in there, you say it. Every single letter that shows up in German. Gets I mean, it's said. not like English doesn't have that, too. We have a lot of things like through. I mean, there's lots of letters that we don't really say. Can you be more specific? There are lots of throughs, you know. Right. So, I mean. But but I'm in German, saying... in from where Bob comes from, you pronounce all the letters. True. All of them. True. You fit them in. But yeah. So, and then a lot of words, even though they're sound, they are spelled differently and have slightly different sound, they mean different things. Yeah. Which is problematic if you didn't understand the way he spoke. Right. Because Just, maybe, maybe the most, I mean, accent has a lot to do with it. And, you know. Yeah. It's really, an, I mean, guys, I could tell you how annoying French is. I'm still trying to learn it because I'm fascinated because I read a lot of books that have French in it. So I'm like, oh, it'd be nice yeah. to not have to get Google Translate. You know, like where and or are the same word except for where has a little accent over the O. Guys. But it's the same. It's O-U. But in where, the O has a little accent in or it doesn't. I, I don't know. Anyway. Look, I just, I, we have offended yeah. our one French listener, if we even have that anymore. We've offended them so many times. I mean, you know. I, like, we're, man, we're probably I don't know. Anybody else out there feel like French is, is really difficult? Or, like, or what language is? And I'm not talking about languages with different alphabets than our own, because we're not even talking about yeah. Russian and Chinese. Yeah, no, don't, don't bring any of that in here. I'm talking about the regular Western, you know, Latin alphabet, you know. Don't bring Greek over here. Like, is Spanish this confusing? I don't feel like I it. I don't is. feel like this. Dad speaks Spanish. Dad, do you Spanish words just like add an accent to one letter and then have a completely different word? I don't know. Yes, please um, tell us because I don't. I mean, they're all romance languages, so like in theory, they should be similar. But I don't know, France. France. I don't know. You be tripping me up with your accents and whatever anyway that's fair that's just a fair saying. point and clearly this it is caused, the problem that Bob it caused had. problems caused scientific community because issues. i feel like bob and louie had they teamed up would have been the scientific dream team yeah. could have been cool you know like i just For really sure. feel like that could have been a thing a partnership versus a combative well i mean not a combative they hated each other the guy the guy straight out said it they hated each other's guts so I don't know. But again, maybe they were yeah. just people alike. Maybe. Yeah. So, uh, sources. Uh, let's see. So, I read an article about Bob by Myron G. Schultz from Emerging Infectious Diseases. Oh. Um, I read Louis Pasteur, Germ Destroyer by Nancy Diekman. Uh, it's juvenile fiction, but it was interesting. Yeah, I found cool. a few fun facts. Um, and then a bigger, a larger biography on Louis by Patrice Debray from like 1998, but it was a pretty comprehensive uh, biography, pretty big. 
I think that's about it, really. I real, I mean, I probably use Wikipedia a little bit for Bob, just because there's not a ton of information to be found on him. Yeah, like that one article was kind of where I found most everything. So, yeah. Well, I had Great Feuds in Medicine by Hal Hellman, which was fun because that was there were a whole bunch of other ones in there. I wrote some down for future episodes mm, because good. there was some good stuff. Yeah, I read The Germ Detectives by Jim Alhoff. Um, Founders of Modern Medicine by Ellie Mechnikoff. That was the one that included the writings of Bob and Louie, which was very cool. Hmm. Okay. I read uh, oh, Pioneers in Microbiology, The Human Side of Science by King Tom Chung mm-hmm. and John Kang Lu. And cool. a couple of websites. Websites about like, how do I describe an endospore for someone? Please someone mm-hmm. break this down for me. Because like it's, I know what it is, but I don't know what it is, you know. Um, oh, and yeah, I read yeah. a book called Germ Theory by Robert P. Gaines, parts of that book. That was an interesting book too, just because, again, the whole idea of germ theory and figuring out what makes us sick was one of the biggest questions in science forever. And there was a lot of debate and a lot of disagreement. And so, again, Bob and Louie were a small part of that book because there's a whole other a whole bunch of other people around it that we got to talk about so um and we will so yeah but that those are my sources cool so the reference manager for the podcast will probably put those up on social media we did definitely the first episode yeah and listeners well a listener actually said hey i'm gonna read a book or two because of you you putting them there so you know the Yay. reference manager is making an effort again she's doing amazing really going for it <laughs> do you want to tease next week's episode well i had a joke about perfume but it didn't make any sense get out <laughs> i'm so mad at you right now that's almost <laughs> as bad as the chicken joke you sent me which I was also furious about. <laughs> Do you want to share your chicken joke with everyone? I mean, it's not mine. I saw it on Instagram reels, but it was something about Mozart got offended by the chicken because he asked the chicken what their the chickens what their who their favorite composer was. And the chickens <laughs> the chickens responded can't even say it because she's laughing so hard guys this made me so angry (laughs) i was livid i'm still mad about it (laughs) get out just leave (laughs) Uh, um, yeah so i guess we'll just have to follow our noses to make sense of our ba Hmm. next week yeah i'll accept that i'll accept that one okay that's a good hint i'm a, i am fair i know you're not as excited as i am because you had a lot of chemistry that is it's not even that it just it's, it's just it's busy i'm in a very busy time so i don't mm. have as much time to to devote to the chemistry do the re- yeah do the research that i would maybe otherwise do it'll still be great it just you know it's not as much not as satisfatisfying for you as maybe some other yeah. researches. Yeah, oh, that's, that's fair. I 
went down some really fabulous rabbit holes. I have a lot of great tea. This is a biography that was actually pretty fun for me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be really good. So I think that's all we have for this week then, right? Yep. Okay. Well, until next time, live dangerously, do science.